0: Welcome to the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This episode contains a sermon from January 16th by Pastor Randy, titled Nehemiah, Build Back Your Faith, Part 1. It's good to see you here. Okay, now, here's what you need to know. Well, first of all, um, I don't know if y'all realize, I'll just say one more time, uh, I do out these sheets every week. That has what's on the screen is is on these sheets, so you don't have to stop and uh, see how friendly trying to copy down what's on the screen. And going to, there's going to be a lot of things on the screen this morning. So if you do, if you are the type that takes notes, there's some here, there's some back there uh, that you can grab and make th- make things a little bit easier. And uh, I am uh, kind of well past my COVID sniffles or whatever you want to call it uh that i was out uh, uh, last week uh, with uh, do have a lingering cough and and i hope i can get through this without coughing a whole lot because i know that's very uh, a cough is okay but a cough coming through a microphone there's just something about that that just is not right so anyway uh, we'll try and get through without that i was sucking on cough drops as we were singing before coming up here Hopefully that would help uh all right, here's the thing. I'm convinced that we need revival. And this is not something that's new with me. It's been on my heart for probably almost 20 years. More recently, uh, a couple of years ago, we did a series on revival. Last year in, in August and in, oh, I, th- I think it was July in, uh, or August and September, we talked about the Church's Revelation and how what God expects of the church is what He expects of us, and, and looking at that in light of revival, and then we spent all of October, November, going through personal revival, going through together uh, a book with topics leading us into personal revival, and that desire for revival that hasn't gone away; that's just gotten stronger. My hope, my goal is to convince you that we need revival. Or to be more precise, to convince you that you need revival just as I'm convinced that I need revival. And so what we're going to do this year, we're going to start off in Nehemiah. We're going to go through the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, as Christina uh, illustrated for us, it's about the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem. But after the walls are rebuilt, the people, they begin to get rebuilt. They experience a revival. And so we're going to go through the book of Nehemiah, and it's my hope that that as we go through this book and we see what happened that caused that revival to happen, that that will encourage our own revival. Mm -hmm. Uh, A little bit of background for the book of Nehemiah. We'll just very briefly. The prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel and those prophets were right. Judgment was coming to Judah, and it came in the form of Babylon. And they came in and, and destroyed the city and took a lot of people as exiles back within the Babylon to be slaves and to help out in their system and everything over there to uh, to help them be continue to be a, a great nation. And then after so many years, Cyrus of Persia conquered Babylon. And he had a different view. His view was not to bring people from, from a conquered country back over to the capital city or, or to put people from here back over there. The idea of them doing that was mixing up a bunch of people so there wasn't any national pride, so people wouldn't rise up and try to rebel against them. But Cyrus didn't have that concept. That's not the way he operated. He said, fine, you want to go back to your home country? I don't care. As long as you send back taxes, we're good. And so they got permission to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city at that time to also. So in 537 B.C., Zerubbabel leads 50,000 Israelites from the Babylon Babylon area back to Jerusalem. And in 515 B.C., they rebuild the temple. Then for the next 50 years, nothing except the moral decline of the people. Then in 457 BC, Ezra leads 20,000, a group of 20,000 from Babylon back to the Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And when Ezra gets there, he finds that the leaders, the priests, uh, the Levites—they've all married foreign wives. These unbelieving wives, the, the, the people that have come and had been staying there and been mixed in with them, they begin marrying all these unbelieving wives and so he preaches a revival preaches and the revival sort of breaks out but still the city of jerusalem is in shambles and the walls in shambles and then hanani goes to visit his brother nehemiah in the capital of persia and he and when he gets there he tells him what's been going on at the city and as a result of that meeting in just 52 days the walls are rebuilt, then the people are rebuilt. And it's my hope, again, that the revival that they experienced, that, that, we, can be, that we can be encouraged by that, that we can take some of the things that, that, that they went through and their approaches and what was on their heart, and that can encourage us to experience our own revival. Okay. So we're all set up to start today in Nehemiah, right? We're all good? All right, here we go. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekaliah, during the month of Chislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hannah and I, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's walls has been broken down, and its gates have been burned. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heavens. I said, Lord, the God of heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the Father's horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and your strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man at the time I was the king's cupbearer. Okay. So notice how he ends this. He says, I was the king's cupbearer. So that's what's Nehemiah, that was his job. And we hear cupbearer, we think something like a glorified butler, but it was much more than that. What he did is he tasted the the wine before it was given to the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned. because if it was poisoned, he would die and not the king. Now, since Artaxerxes' father was killed by a servant, this is a very real threat. A lot of kings during this time uh, had people to do this very same thing. But I also want you to know, being a cupbearer of the king, that puts you in the king's presence all the time. Because kings, they like their wine, so they're constantly drinking wine for one thing. But this is this is a, a place of confidence. You have, you're in the king's inner circle. It's more like a cabinet-level position. He has the ear of the king. But what I also want you to notice is how he goes through the state of the Israelites. He goes through what the nation of Israel is going through, what God's people are going through. And then he says, and I was cut bare to the king. He makes a correlation between his job and the people of Israel. What I want you to understand here is that you need to look at your job more than just the dollars it generates. Because what God has you doing is never a Coincidence. It's always, therefore, they're used for the kingdom of God. It always has that purpose. Joseph, he makes that same correlation. He goes, I was second command in Egypt, but I was a Jew, and, and I was able to use that to, to be a blessing to God's people. Uh, Mordecai tells Esther, maybe God has you in this place for such a time as this. Esther, make a correlation between what your role is as queen and being a blessing to the kingdom of God. We see this over and over again through Daniel. It's always a mistake to try and separate the secular from the sacred. God doesn't have you where you're at for no reason. He always has a purpose in it. So when these guys come from Judah and and, and Nehemiah asks him, How are things back there? He's not prepared for the answer. He hears that that it's just in shambles. The the walls are broken down. The gates are burned. Everything is in shambles. He's broken. He's broken. The first thing I want you to realize is before revival can come, there has to be some mourning over the way things are. You cannot heal what you don't feel. Or to put it another way, God's not going to send his presence till we mourn his absence. Nehemiah, he's his his heart is broken over the state. What he does, he he enters into this time of fasting and mourning over the state of the people. He's broken up by it. So here's the question that I want to ask you: what breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? I believe a big reason that revival is so elusive to us is because we're not broken over the state of our own hearts or of the culture around us. We look at our own hearts and what do we, what do we say? When we look at ourselves, what do we say about ourselves? I'll tell you what I say about, it. I don't have a problem, not me. We look at our culture around us and we go, that's their problem. It's not my fault, that's their problem. So let me ask you this. When was the last time you mourned over the condition of your heart or you mourned over the condition of our culture? Don't expect revival to ever come if you're not upset over the way things are. Here's the thing, no one rebuilds until they weep over the ruins. Our Christian culture has lost its ability to weep. Has it not? Consider this. Nehemiah had lived in Persia his whole life. Whenever Zerubbabel took his group of 50,000 back to Israel, his family wasn't a part of that. When Ezra took the 20,000 back, his family, his, his parents, whatever, they, they weren't a part of that. Because like so many Jews, although they have been taken to exile, they now, they had lives in Babylon. They had jobs, they had kids. So now they're happy there. And he did not go back. So let me ask you, why is Nehemiah so upset over the walls of Jerusalem? and the condition of Jerusalem. Why? Why is he so upset about that? And the answer is in his prayer, what he's upset over is the glory of God. He's upset because the conditions of the walls of Jerusalem, that's God's city, and and that reflects people's attitude toward God. They say, hey, Jerusalem, they're in ruins, so they don't think anything about God. See, Nehemiah, he doesn't want to build the, the walls back for the glory of Nehemiah. He wants it built back for the glory of God. Let's go back to what he says. He says, please, Lord, let the ear, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Those who are concerned about your glory. That's why he's upset. And then he says later on, but if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the father's horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have your name dwell. Do you see the correlation that that, that Nehemiah is making in this? He's making the uh, the, the correlation is that the spiritual condition of the people are reflected in the walls of Jerusalem, in fact, what the walls look like, and that is reflection upon God. He's concerned about the glory of God. Is that your concern in our culture today? What people are thinking about God? Does that concern you? That we live in a culture which whenever the subject of God comes up, They're not concerned about giving him glory. They'll tear that down. They'll make fun of it. They'll they'll do lots of other things besides want to give him the glory he deserves. So what does Nehemiah do? Instead of shrugging his shoulders and saying, well, that's their problem in Jerusalem, he begins for four and a half months praying and fasting. Here's the thing. Understand that before you read. It, understand this: prayer fuels vision. Okay, prayer fuels vision. The sovereign God has made the sovereign choice to wait to act until He is asked, until somebody, namely Nehemiah, is willing to go before God and, and have his heart broken and plead to God for things to change. They're not going to change. What does James say? You have not because you ask not. Consider this. May the biggest obstacle to revival is not the wickedness of the world, but the presence of the church. Because the church refuses to pray. You see, here's the thing I want you to realize. It's real easy to isolate ourselves from the needs of other people. It's real easy for us to say, oh, that going over there, that's not my problem. That's not my fault. It's so easy for us to do that. Oh, that stuff going on at the border with all the immigrants, that's not my problem, that's not my fault. Racism, not my problem, not my fault. I wasn't even around 150 years ago. It's not my fault. Nehemiah could have looked at the walls around Jerusalem and said, I didn't have anything to do with the wickedness that brought about the fall of Jerusalem. It's not my fault. It's not my problem. But what wasn't his fault, wasn't his problem, became his burden. Here's the thing I want you to realize. People that want to see revival will allow their hearts to be broken over what's breaking the heart of God. What we don't want to admit is that although we aren't responsible for the creation of the problem, we're responsible for the solution. Do you see that? Question is, are are you willing to own it? See, Nehemiah says, I confess the sins of my family and my people, which he wasn't even a part of. But what he's doing, he's entering into the spiritual past of his people so he can be a part of their spiritual future. Prayer will help you on the sin of the past for the sake of the future. Here's the thing I want you to realize. You have the attitude, you look around our culture today and you have the attitude, it's not my fault, it's not my problem. That is not Biblical. We'll see this again in Nehemiah chapter nine, Ezra chapter nine, Daniel chapter nine. I'm not sure why it's all in chapter nines, but you read those places, and there you'll see where, where they say, my sin, my family, that my, they're entering into that. They're not saying, oh, it's not my fault, not my problem. Can't blame me for it. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you, Day and night for your servants, Israelites, I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my family, father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave to your servant Moses. How refreshing it is to see people a person who's willing to think beyond themselves. He doesn't say, they did this, it was their problem, it was their fault. No, he says, we have done this. One more important thing. The thing that keeps people from experiencing revival is that they are so intent on blaming their broken walls and burning gates on everybody else. It's not my problem again, it's not my fault. I didn't do anything. That's what we do. It's always somebody else's fault. And that attitude keeps relationships from being rebuilt. That attitude keeps, keeps revival from happening. It keeps marriages from, from being rebuilt. That attitude, it, it, it keeps churches from being unified. People who will look at the issue and go, it's not my problem, I didn't have anything to do with that, not my fault. If a people are going to experience revival, and we'll talk about this next week, that that there's this desperation, there's this brokenness that has to be there. They're not angry. They're not bent on going after things and, and, and tearing down. No, they're not angry. They're not bitter. They're not mad. They're broken and they're willing to to enter into it and say, it's not just them, that's me. They're willing to enter into the the sins of the past in order to be part of the solution in the future. That's what God did for us, isn't it? He didn't get angry, he didn't get upset. He entered into our lives to become part of the solution for the future. He was broken over our sin. And he entered into and took that upon himself when it was not his fault. It was not his problem. It's the principle of representation. Okay, we do have that up there. Principle, you need to, you need to be familiar with this. Anybody gonna be watching football today? Playoffs, nobody? Okay, a few people, all right. I know, okay, I know you're not big football fans. Whenever someone jumps off sides or whenever somebody has a false start, they don't take that one player and make that one player start five yards back. The whole team starts five yards back. Why? Because the principle of representation that they represent, they're part of the whole team. You look in the Bible, and whenever kings like David and Solomon, when they would mess up, it would cost the whole nation of Israel. Because of the principle of representation. You see it positively in the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Whenever someone is sanctified, they're holy, they sanctify their whole household. It's the whole reason we're going to heaven because of the principle of representation. Jesus became the second Adam. He took our sins upon himself. He represented us. That's what Nehemiah does. He's like an intercessor. He he stands in the gap. He's willing to stand in the gap. He doesn't say, they have a problem. He says, we have a problem. And he stands in the gap. He's not angry. He's broken. Another thing that I want you to understand as we begin this in, in In Nehemiah is this, we pray to a God who's just as willing to be active today as he was then. See, it had been hundreds of years (laughs) since they had seen God act. And I wonder if we understand that today. There was a woman who told her pastor this story. She said, this past week, one day this week, she got a call from the school that her child was sick you need to come pick him up so she goes to school school nurse there picks him up she says he has a fever you need to get him to a doctor probably sooner than later so she goes to one of those first care type clinics you know not very busy she walks right in sees a doctor the doctor sees him writes the script for an antibiotic and says you need to get this start within start this antibiotic in him as soon as possible so she takes the kid home she goes back to the pharmacy She comes out of the pharmacy. She's locked her keys in her car. And I didn't mention this before, but she just put a pie in the oven before all this started out. So now she's got a pie that's about to explode. She's got her son homesick. She she can't get back into her car to get home because she's locked the keys in the car. And she calls her husband. What do I do? What do I do? Her husband, he's in another city right now. He says, well, just get a coat hanger. See if you can open up the door. She gets a coat hanger. She's trying to open up the door. She can't do it. Her frustration is growing. She cries out, God, you've got to send me somebody to help me break into my car. And about that time, this scruffy-looking guy walks by. He goes, "Ma'am, why are you crying? She says, I've got to break into my car. He says, give me that. He takes the coat hanger. In two seconds, pops the lock. She's in the car. She says, you're such a good person. You must be a Christian. He says, no. I'm not a Christian and I'm not a good person either. I just got released from prison. She goes, praise God, he sent me a professional. Here's what I want you to understand. We should expect the extraordinary when we pray to a sovereign God because nothing lies outside the reach of prayer. The one thing that you need to learn, not one thing, one of the five things today I hope you learn is, is that And we're going to see this next, uh, not next week, but in two weeks, how God responds and does so much in in this rebuilding of the wall in response to Nehemiah's prayer. Here's the other thing. When God opens the door, he expects you to walk through it. Nehemiah prays. He's got his burden for the people that that burden begins to move his own heart he begins to say, okay, God, what can I do? He says, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. See what he does? He, right now, Nehemiah didn't just offer his prayers, he offered himself, Lord, give me success. The more you pray for the future God wants, the more you want God to use you to build it. The more you pray for the future God wants, the more you want God to use you to build it. It's simple. You begin praying for someone to be saved. God, I hope that that you can save this person, that, that, that that they'll become a Christ follower. Then pretty soon, you're gonna be praying, God, use me to do it. You begin praying for kids in your neighborhood, Pretty soon you might find yourself, okay, now I'm going to start working with kids in my neighborhood. You begin praying for foster kids, you might become a foster parent. Prayer is not how we get God to do our will. Prayer is how God gets us to do his will. You begin praying for something. You get a burden for something and you'll you'll watch how God will turn your heart and use you to do that very thing. And so for four and a half months, Nehemiah is praying. And as we see this conclusion, that he writes this conclusion, he says, okay, God, what do you want to do with me in this? How can I be used? I was cupbearer to the king. He begins to make a correlation between his job and how God can use him to bring about this great act that's going to happen. The other thing is, that I want you to understand, and, and we'll see this again in, in two weeks, how God can do much more than we think. What's that? Ephesians 3.20, God's able to do uh, much beyond all you could ask or think. So, so God has a future for us that's more awesome than we can imagine. I look at it this way. <clears throat> I get to heaven I'm going to this library in heaven and in this library in heaven I see this book that says The Life and Ministry of Randy Graham and it's this thick book this doorstop book and I begin to read that and I go wow man that's great but I don't remember most of these things God this is supposed to be my life? But most of these things I don't remember even doing or being a part of. And God says, oh, that's all the things I was willing to do if you'd asked for it. Over there is a little pamphlet and all the things that you asked for. Or you go through the library and you see this 12-volume set, The Life and Ministry of Miracles of Grandview Baptist Church. And I start looking through that and I go, wow. But I was there for over 20 years. I don't remember a lot of this stuff. And God says, oh, that's all the things I was willing to do through Grandview if they'd ask. Over there's a little magazine of everything that they asked for. I don't want to get to heaven and find out how much more could have happened if I'd been praying for myself, my family, my church. God will do more than we ask if we ask more. Nehemiah is going to make a big ask that we see in a couple weeks. A big one. And he gets blessed beyond his wildest dreams because he's willing to ask. All right, the last thing this morning prayer and fasting. For four and a half months, prayer and fasting. It's what Nehemiah does. So here's my question for you. How could something so clearly taught and modeled in scripture be so rarely practiced as fasting? I think a lot of times the simple truth is is we let other things push prayer and fasting out of our lives rather than let prayer and fasting push other things out of our lives. I think a lot of times we think, I'm doing okay, I've got this. That's our approach to life, is it not? I can handle it. I'm insured. I'm doing okay. And there's not a person in this room right now whose life can't be totally blown apart by a phone call. And I've seen it. You lose your job for a couple weeks, you're okay. But you let it go on nine months a year, you're praying like Elijah all of a sudden. You have someone you love who's near death. You're praying like crazy. See, whenever the bottom falls out of your lives and how the universe is actually ordered becomes clear to you, you begin to pray. But what we don't realize is that we're just that dependent upon God. Whether things are going great or not, we're just that dependent upon Him. And we're become a people who will look at the brokenness that's in our lives and in our culture and we won't take the time to fast and pray because we think, not my fault, or we think, it's okay, you know, as long as I can get through, that's all that matters, as long as I can make it. We're missing the very heart of our God. Let me put it this way. Let's go from football to basketball. Yesterday, or I think it was Friday, actually, I was watching part of a basketball game. Those guys that can run down the court stop behind a three-point line and shoot and sink that and do it consistently? That's amazing to me. Those guys that are almost seven foot tall that stand up underneath the rim and they can touch the rim just by doing this and they jump up and dunk, that doesn't impress me a bit. So you can do a little bit of this and turn around and dunk the ball with both hands. Big deal. Put me on a... Eight foot goal, I can do that too. But those guys that can run full speed off a screen and stop and pop up and hit that jumper, oh, and do it consistently. While the game was on, my wife said to me, I don't see how they can shoot from that far away and have it go in. The, the exact, something like this, exact words. And I'm going, yeah, I know, that's pretty amazing what they can do. And I can think about what how those guys can do that and and that just, it blows my mind. But it's different if I begin thinking about the guy who can make that three-point shot. What was it like when he was a little kid? Did he put a little goal in his little crib and he couldn't even walk, but he crawls over and, and puts a, Ball in a basket, is that what they did? What was his mother like when he was in JV? Was she the annoying one in the stands, you know, yelling and all that? What did this guy major in? What does he like to do for hobbies? What kind of food does he like to eat? You see, what he can do and who he is are completely different things. You get that? What the guy can do on the court and who he is is completely different. And I think where it comes to God, we're pretty good at one, but we're pretty bad at the other. We're, We're so great about, oh, this is what our God can do, this is what I can do. But we don't really focus on who he is. And when we get consumed with what our God can do and who our God is, that will drive you to prayer and fasting. I won't have to ask you. You'll just do it. I won't have to guilt you, although I'm not. Don't rule out guilt ever. Sometimes it works good. I won't have to guilt you in that. You'll just do it. And oh, that we would be a people just this year that we begin fasting and praying for revival. Because I'm telling you, unless we're desperate for it, unless we we see that enough of what needs to be done in our lives and in our culture, it's not going to happen. We have a God that moves mountains, and prayer moves God. Oh, that we would be a people. That see clearly how we have our walls are broken down, our gates have been burned, everything's in shambles. How much we need now not to just say, not my fault, not my problem and we don't need to get angry over what's going on out there. We need to be broken over it. If those desires are strong enough, rather than complaining about the way things are, we begin to pursue about the way things, how they ought to be, how they should be. What if that's us? What if that's us? What if, like Nehemiah, we were broken over the condition of our own hearts and that of our culture? I hope we're not far away from that. I fear that we are. I had a friend call me up um, last week And he was asking me about a passage in Exodus 33 where God tells Moses, you go on the promised land, I'll send an angel with you, and he'll take care of everything, and, and, and you'll, you know, you'll be able to conquer and do all that, but I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to stay here. And Moses says, God, if you don't go up with us, we don't want to go. And, and then we, we begin talking about how we're content to try and do Christian life without the presence of God, without his manifest presence in our lives. We're okay with that. Moses said, no, I don't want to go anywhere without it. But no, we're people, we're okay, God, that's fine. You don't go, as, as long as it happens, I'm okay without your presence. Moses says, no, I've got to have your presence. And so I begin talking about how we're just a people content without the presence of God. And he was going to be, this was on Wednesday, this past Wednesday, and he was going to be teaching on his passion's Wednesday night. And I said, look, just do me a favor. Whenever you make that point that we are a people content to try and do the Christian life without the presence of God, just do me a favor. Just don't go, okay. Now, the next verse says, or the next point. if that's true, if you really believe it's true, you should stop there. That should have an impact on you if you really believe it's true upon you, upon your people. And you see, I fear that I could come up and, and tell you how Nehemiah is consumed about what needs to change in his own life and in life, is culture, and how right now our culture is in shambles you know, and, and what do we want to do? We want to say it's their fault. It's in their family, not my family. It's in that side of church, not in that side of church. Or it's not in church, but it's in our culture. And we want to put the blame everywhere else. And, 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 and we don't want to realize what, what we need to do. We don't want to be broken over it. We don't want to... It takes too much time to do that. You know, I don't want to interrupt my life. I just can't do that right now. And and you guys, you'll say, yes, yes, yes. Amen, amen, amen. And then go out the door and go, okay. What's next? Mm. Until there's a sense of desperation that won't leave you, you're like Nehemiah. For four and a half months, I prayed and fasted before God because I was so broken over this. Until you're broken over what's going on in your life and going on in our culture, don't expect to see revival. It has to start there. So here's what I want you to do I want you to begin praying and fasting. Or, for some of you, God, help me to want to pray and fast. Maybe that's a prayer you need to pray. God, please help me have a desire to pray and fast. Listen. If you're starting here, that's fine. If you got to back up, and start here. I'm okay as long as you start doing something. All right? I don't know where you're at in this process. Some of you, maybe that, maybe I'm just expressing what's been on your heart for a long time. I don't know. You may be way down here, but wherever you're at, just take the next step in the process. Don't be people who are satisfied with broken walls and burned gates. Because that's where our culture's at right now. And if that's not clear, I'm not sure I can help you with that. If you want, I can give you lots of examples, but I mean, if you can't see that yourself, I don't know. Okay. Been waiting almost a month to tell you guys this. Been looking forward to Nehemiah. But what you gonna do with it? What you gonna do with it? We want to as a church. You can begin. Begin. If that's what you wanna do, we give the invitation, just come down front, begin kneeling and pray. Allow yourself to be broken. Remember what David would say in the Psalms? He'd go, oh, my soul. It's like he would take his soul and shake it and say, okay, soul, wake up, wake up. That'd be good for you to do with yourself today, to take and and, and just shake yourself and go, wake up, wake up. Okay, I'm going much further than I intended. So now's the time for you to have a choice. And you're gonna have this choice Today, tomorrow, the next day, next day. And all I'm asking you is to just start taking a step. Just start taking a step. Decide from now on. Make a plan, your prayer and fasting plan. Past, we've done that in the past year. We've had there were two years when we had a person praying and fasting every day for two years here. Every day of the year, there was somebody praying and fasting. We've done that. We've done 40 days, we've done two weeks, we've done three weeks. You decide, God, what do you want me to do here? And begin to do it. Take a step. Thank you for tuning into the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. For more information, check out our website at gbcak.org.